all Israel will be saved. Paul shares deep inner feelings in his discourse with Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. I have great sorrow and grief in my heart, he cries, because the Jewish believers were convinced that Gentiles had to be circumcised and know the law. Paul had shared with these believers in Rome what Christ has accomplished through me, and he has been displaying the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. In spite of this dramatic witness, Jewish believers in Rome were continuing to insist that a walk of righteousness could only be accomplished by knowing the law. So Paul had to penetrate the grip of tradition in order to present the exciting discoveries he had uncovered from the depth of Scripture. Paul starts in Romans chapter 9 with legal midrash that discloses Israel's special inheritance of leadership called the birthright. However, individual Jews could lose the birthright for unworthy behavior, although they still belong to God, as we see with Reuben, who lost the birthright, but the tribe of Reuben inherited land in the promised land. However, those who are worthy to inherit the birthright will become a remnant in God's plan to eventually bring all his children into his righteous presence. Paul then proceeds to use exquisite linguistic artistry through citations and commentary to expand on this theme of the remnant throughout Romans chapters 9 to 11. God had called Paul to an earth-shattering task that would eventually change the minds and hearts of people throughout the world. We can see that Paul faced a tremendous challenge in the culture of his time. Confronting and overcoming tradition is a daunting task. As we proceed to tackle Paul's exciting words, all Israel will be saved, we must keep in mind the context of what Paul has been presenting in Romans 9-11. to The theme of these three chapters is God's selection of a remnant. Paul has been addressing Jewish believers in Rome who were teaching their Gentile brethren that circumcision and knowledge of the law were required to participate in God's covenant community. Paul has been trying to stimulate their jealousy by explaining what God has given the Gentile believers in Christ because if the Jews in Rome continue continue teaching their false doctrine, they will be denied participation in the remnant, which is the inheritance of the birthright to which they have been born. Paul uses the imagery of an olive tree and declares that these Jewish believers will be cut off so new life can grow from the branches. The new life is the pagan Gentile believers that God continues to present in an attempt to make them jealous. Therefore, we must not conclude that the Jews will not be saved, which is a common theological interpretation. It is the inheritance of the birthright that they are at risk of losing. Paul now starts with an introduction to his dramatic statement that all Israel will be saved, which points to a future event. This startling announcement follows his warning to Gentile believers in Christ. If God did not spare the natural branches, which are the unbelieving Jews, or Jews who are not worthy to participate in the remnant, neither will he spare you from his selection of the remnant. Romans 11.21 Paul then presents the premise to his dramatic statement that all Israel will be saved. And they also, these are the Jews who are not worthy to inherit the birthright and participate in the remnant, again, If they do not continue in their unbelief, which is that they become worthy in God's eyes by their righteous behavior, then they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you, 
Now he's speaking to Gentiles, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? That's Romans chapter 11, verses 23-24. We are looking at a future time. We are looking at those Jews who are the branches that have been cut off by their unbelief in Yeshua the Messiah or by their failure to walk in righteousness by the gift of the Holy Spirit for those who do believe in Yeshua. However, these unbelieving Jews will be grafted back into the olive tree. The root of the tree is Yeshua. The tree is producing new life that is holy and righteous in service to God. New life has already begun, declares Paul from those children of Israel who are worthy to inherit the birthright. Now, Paul insists, new life is emerging from Gentile believers in Christ who have submitted in service to their Lord. This new life, both Jew and Gentile, is a remnant. At some time in the future, Paul tells us the Messiah and his remnant will make it possible for all God's children to be grafted into the holy root. When this happens, all of God's children will be in a pure and righteous condition that allows them to come into God's presence. In Romans chapter 11, verses 23 to 24, there are two if clauses. One states a condition, and the other conveys a certainty. The condition is this. The Jews who are broken off by their failure to believe in God's Messiah, which would have allowed them to do the law in a walk of righteousness, must believe. Believing in what, we ask? I suggest the answer is related to the two aspects of salvation. First, we believe in the Messiah, which results in the first aspect of salvation. Then we submit to the Messiah in a walk of faith or believing, which is the second aspect of salvation. Both are required for a new life with God. The certainty is this. Because God has grafted in the pagan Gentiles, which is an unnatural procedure that requires a miracle, he will certainly graft the Jews back into their own olive tree, the one from which they have been cut off. How much more is a Hebraic expression that takes a biblical principle and elevates it to a higher plateau of performance and understanding? How much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul now presents his evidence from Scripture to support his claim that all Israel will be saved. He cites two verses from Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's Romans 11, 26, 27, citing Isaiah 59, 20, 21. Traditionally, the temptation has been to try and understand Paul's message from what he has quoted. However, when the people of ancient Israel heard a brief quotation from Scripture, what would they be thinking? They had not memorized Scripture verse by verse like we do today. They had internalized blocks or portions of the holy writings by listening and memorizing. Therefore, we must turn to the quotation in Isaiah and begin by identifying its context, which will be its likely memorized block. It appears that the context begins in Isaiah 59.9. God's judgment of Israel continues in a litany of sinful behavior through verse 19. As only one example, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. That's Isaiah 59.9. 
This verse should stimulate a powerful visual image. Perhaps you are jogging on a trail and you look back in the direction from which you started. Righteousness is standing there behind you, the righteousness that God planted in you when you first belonged to him. The path you have been traveling from the time you first believed in God's Son has been in the midst of an ungodly world. What is the nature of the path that you see behind you? If you are human, and of course you are, your inclination has been to sin, even though your heart desires to be one with God in a sinless condition. Justice is far from us means that our daily walk still contains elements of sin. Righteousness does not overtake us because we are on a path of sin where righteousness refuses to follow. In verse 16, Isaiah suddenly turns to present a carrot of hope. A glimpse of what was still future in the time of Isaiah, some of Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah has been fulfilled by Yeshua. For, for example, I'm reading here from Isaiah 59:16, The Lord saw that there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought salvation to him, to the one who was going to intercede, and his righteousness upheld him. Who will God send as the one to intercede? God will act through a Savior. Messiah means Savior. And the Messiah will save God's people. But how, we demand, will God deliver his people through this Messiah? That is the question that Paul has stimulated by declaring that all Israel will be saved. So we must continue to carefully work through the Isaiah passage. We see a time of judgment when God will make a selection according to their deeds. Now, deeds is the Hebrew gemulot, which is important because it's repeated three times in this one verse. According to their deeds, gemulot, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense, which is gemul, the same word, to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. That's that gamul again. All right. So these poetic lines are in a chiastic ABBA construction. I am drawn first to the A lines that are parallel by using the same Hebrew word gamul, translated repay and recompense. The expansion in the first A line tells us that God's judgment will occur according to deeds or works. I am then attracted by the Hebrew word gemul because it is repeated three times. Gemul is used most often in the Hebrew scriptures to convey that whatever we do will be returned to us. If we do good, then good will be returned. If we do evil, then evil will be returned. For example, a proverb tells us, the deeds of a man's hand will return to him. That's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 14. This judgment according to deeds is not a judgment to determine who will be saved or who belongs to God, which is the first aspect of salvation and a gift from God that does not require works. Instead, I suggest that this judgment of deeds will occur when God selects a remnant. The selection will be based on deeds that are works of righteousness. In the middle B lines, we see adversaries and enemies. However, I do not think these are followers of Satan. This seems to be a graphic image of two groups of Christian believers from whom God is making a selection. There are those who are not worthy to participate in the remnant, 
The deeds of these people will be heavy with unrighteousness. Now listen to Isaiah who describes the remnant. They will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Fear of the the glory of the Lord will encompass the entire universe from the setting of the sun in the west to the rising of the sun in the east. Then we hear that God, actually I believe it will be the Messiah issuing in the millennial kingdom, will come like a rushing stream that the wind drives. We have now finished examining the context in Isaiah of the two verses that Paul quoted. We are ready to tackle the provocative artistry of Paul's citation of these two verses. Paul begins in a way that prepares us for this artistic delivery of the quotation. We hear him declare, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Paul has uncovered a mystery, which is something that God has embedded in the depth of Scripture. Now Paul cites from Isaiah 59, 20, 21, where he will use artistry of language to display this mystery. So we will have to work to see and understand it. You can begin by comparing Paul's words with what he has quoted in Isaiah. You will see that Paul has added something that is not in the Isaiah passage, and he has intentionally deleted something that is startling by its omission. We will be drawn to these changes, which are clues to a deeper meaning. But first, we must compare the two passages. First, I'm going to read Paul, and then I'm going to compare it with what he quoted in Isaiah, but I'm going to read Isaiah in the context. So, do your best and listen for what has been added and what Paul has decided, but when I'm through quoting here, I'll explain to you my thoughts. Here's Paul. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now we listen to Isaiah. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forevermore. That's in Isaiah 59 verses 20 and 21, which is the context of what Paul has quoted. After you listen to the Isaiah passage, you can hear in verse 20 that the Messiah will redeem those whose transgressions will be removed. If you compare Paul's original Greek with Isaiah's Hebrew, not the English translations, you will hear there's no significant difference in this first verse. However, what follows in in the next verse of Isaiah has two startling changes from what Paul quoted. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord to Isaiah, which Paul has quoted. But then Paul adds, when I take away their sins, which is a repetitive concept of what we just read in the preceding verse, remove ungodliness from Jacob. Repetition in scripture is significant, so Paul has added it for repetition. Here, I think Paul is repeating for emphasis. At some time in the future, God will remove sin from all the children of Israel, thus all Israel will be saved. So that's pointing to something that when Paul was living was still future. 
Now we turn to what Paul has deleted. Those who had memorized this passage would have been stunned by its deletion. I suggest that the omission is what Paul wants us to hear because it, it's still future. It's still future in the time of Paul and it's still future for us today. It has something to do with all Israel will be saved. So what did, what did Paul delete? He deleted the end of Isaiah Verse 21, 59, 21. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring says the Lord from now and forever. Today believers in Christ have the gift of the Holy Spirit but can only operate it in part. Today believers in Christ have the law written on their hearts but cannot operate it consistently to walk in righteousness at all times. Today, believers in Christ can speak words of prophecy, but only from time to time. However, sometime in the future, all of God's children will walk by the Spirit all the time. This will be a walk of righteousness, the required condition to come into God's presence. Paul then explains why he has disclosed this mystery. He does not want believers in Christ to be wise in your own estimation, which is pride. Yes, God has given believers in Christ something very special that unbelievers do not have. He has given them the Messiah. And through their faith in the Messiah, he has given them the gift of the Holy Spirit. But that is not the end of the story. Although now a partial hardening has happened to Israel, in the end of time, Paul cautions, all Israel will be saved. Paul's words about the salvation of Israel would have been comforting to those Jews who would not be inheriting the birthright. They would not be participating in the remnant, but would eventually be able to come into God's presence. As for the Gentile believers in Christ, they received an alarming message. Do not be conceited, but fear, Paul warns them. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, referring to God's selection of a remnant.